Well, again, thank you for having me this morning. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and, uh, and it's great to be able to share the Word of God um, with you this morning. Um, before we come to uh, the message, let's just um, open in prayer or pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for being able to gather in your house, Lord, to worship you, our great God, together. Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to come aside and, and set this time aside to spend time in your presence, to spend time with your people and to spend time in your word. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that um, you would give me as the preacher this morning the unction of your spirit. And Lord, you would open our minds and hearts to your word. And Lord, speak to each one of us what we need um, to hear from it this morning. And Lord, we, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians together, and, and primarily Philippians 2, verse 2. And I asked that Philippians 2, 1 to 18 be read for a bit of context. But if, if you're looking for an exposition of um, all those verses, you're going to be sadly disappointed this morning because we're actually going to be jumping around a, a bit. But um, yeah, as we come to the book of Philippians... Let's, let's look at a, a bit of historical context of, of Philippi. Um, Philippi was a city that had been granted the highest possible um, status as a provincial um, Roman, Roman colony in, in the empire. Um, it, it, that status of Roman colony really meant something. Uh, you weren't just a city or you weren't just a town. Um, it was a wealthy city. Um, it, had, it was on a connecting trading route to Rome. Um, and the elevated status that Philippi had, um, along with exemptions from taxes, made it a very appealing place to be and, and a very appealing and desirable place uh, to put yourself. So a lot of military, ex-military veterans um, from the Roman armies um, took advantage of these benefits and settled there. So Philippi uh, was also the place where Paul planted his first church um, in what we know as present-day Europe. So, with that very brief overview of Philippi, can you see some of the comparisons between the Philippians and us today? Um, in Australia, we are um, a wealthy country. Um, we are wealthy in um, financial resources. We've ridden, you know, the various financial storms reasonably well. Um, we have resources, we have stable government, we have better health care and better community services than Philippi could have ever dreamt of. The Central Coast area here, like Philippi, is well connected to the bigger cities like Sydney and um, is populated with many ex-Sydneyites uh, looking for a more, a more relaxed environment. Well, that's what they tell me. Um, in, in comparison um, to many cities... Um, and many countries in the world, we are very wealthy. And, and I think, like Sydney, I think it would be fair to say that most people on the coast here are reasonably self-sufficient, um, are reasonably self-confident, and often see little need for God. So the, the context of the book is important, and, um, and it, it is applicable to us today. The most prominent theme in the book of Philippians is joy. 
and specifically joy in serving Jesus. Paul encourages the Philippians throughout this book to partner with him in the gospel and highlights their personal active involvement in doing that. He wants them um, to engage with him and several times in this book he encourages them to do that. So this should be a pointer to us um, to, to be connected in the same way. Paul um, highlights and is maintaining unity and fellowship um, in the work of the gospel. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. So whether you're visiting from another church or whether you're part of the church here, this exhortation and encouragement is applicable to us all. I want to re- let's read again in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul is calling the Philippians and us um, in this passage to unity in life and in the work of the gospel. So, what does unity look like? Um, on, in the, on the surface, in a worldly sense, a worldly definition might be summarised as all feeling the same way about something or you know, ev- everyone voting or agreeing on the same thing and, and the same thing or, or something else. The basis of worldly unity isn't necessarily based on individual facts. It isn't based on doctrine or truth, but rather it's often an alignment of emotions. Um, so, and this isn't what we would term a biblical definition of unity. And the Bible contains many examples of this false unity um, throughout. And we could, we'll look briefly at three this morning. Think about Israel in the, de- in the wilderness. On the way to the promised land, Moses is on the mountain with the Lord receiving the Ten Commandments and the people in a united way come to Aaron and say, what's happened to this Moses? We don't know where he is, where, where he's gone. Let, uh, we want you to make us gods uh, that we can worship to take us into the promised land. Okay? So there was unity, but it was wrong unity. It was based on the wrong thing. And, and it, it was a worldly unity, unity based on emotion and unbelief. We could look at the unity of the people being afraid to take the promised land. So, you know, we're moving forward um, a number of years. The, the, pe- the people are on the border of Canaan. They send the, the spies into the land. And, and the, the 12 spies go in. Two spies, Caleb and Joshua, come back and say, we're able to take the land. And then the other 10 convince the whole congregation 
we're not strong enough, we can't do this, we can't handle this, um, and, and turn the whole congregation around and, and in unbelief and in unity in unbelief, rebel and say, no, we're not strong enough to do this. And most disturbingly, think of um, Jesus in Jerusalem. A, a, a week, a week before his death, the people were saying, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a week later, the, the emotions of the people had been turned and changed and they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. So, worldly unity, worldly emotion, emotional unity based on emotions is a very dangerous thing. So, there's just a few examples of the wrong kind of worldly unity that is described over and over again throughout the Bible from beginning to end. In spite of what the world may think or do, spiritual unity isn't um, based on or identified by who's in the majority or who has the most votes, but who is in alignment with God. True spiritual unity is characterised by being grounded in a knowledge of God's truth and being in submission and agreement with him, regardless of what others might think, say or do. Let's look at three positive examples of, of godly unity throughout the scriptures. Let's look at um, David, and the David to be king. David displayed a, a knowledge and trust in God from, his, uh, from very young, uh, his youngest days. As a young, as a middle-aged, probably late teen, early, early 20s boy, he ran to the battlefield to, to, uh, at his father's request to see how his brothers were faring and to see how Saul was faring. And he sees this massive giant Goliath come out and defy the armies of God. You know, someone come out and fight me. And his brothers, along with the rest of the army, are cowering in terror. And David, what does David say? David says, who is this? However big he is, and he was big. Who is this that defies the armies of the living God? Where was, you know, where was David's confidence? It was in God. It was com his confidence was in God who was the God of the armies, but the, the armies weren't really acknowledging that or accepting that because they were looking at the size of Goliath rather than the size of the God that was over their armies. Look at Elijah um, on, the, on the mountain. 450 prophets of Baal, you know, cutting themselves and running around in circles, trying calling, fire, you know, calling Baal to bring down fire on their sacrifices. And... And Elijah, as the one prophet of the Lord, as he thought, um, there defending the cause of the Lord on, on, Mount, um, on Mount Horeb. So that he, he was there thinking that there was no one else, that he was the only one left and that Ahab had killed all the others. But uh, he found out later that God had spared uh, others uh, to support him in the cause. We could look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the uh, Assyrian Empire. Under Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the superpower at the time, 
and Nebuchadnezzar had an ego uh, bigger, than, bigger than himself. And, and he was asking, he asked that a, a, an image of himself be made and that everyone had to bow down and worship it. But Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were believers of the Lord and knew that that was wrong. And what did they say? Um, no, we're not going to do that. And then they were brought in before Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar said, if you bow down, well and good. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And these three brave young men, with their dependence on God, said, we don't care if you throw us into the furnace. If you do, God can save us. But if, you, but if he chooses not to save us, we're still not going to bow down and worship your image. So, you know, what did these men and, and, and many other men and women like them in both the scriptures and throughout history, what makes them different? What gave them the spiritual fortitude and the spiritual guts to stand in their situation against all the odds? It was the fact that they had their consciences uh, grounded in God's word and his promises to them. In, a book, in the book, um, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, um, he gives a really interesting illustration which, which helps us here. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned by the same tuning fork, are automatically in tune with one another? Uh, they are of one accord by the means not by being tuned to each other, but to one standard. So 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, um, are in heart nearer to each other than they po ever possibly could be if they turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship one with another. Isn't that a wonderful illustration? A goal for the Christian life is to be united with each other in one spirit so that relationships resound like beautiful music to God, in God's ears. We are in tune with one another in, or, in, in our order, in our worship. We are united to give praise to him. But as it's stated, um, most effectively, this is most effectively done when we are in tune with the master. And there is nothing, there is nothing more important than this. The greatest example, I think, of unity in the, in the Bible is the Trinity itself. True spiritual unity is grounded in the unfathomable Trinity, God. Three persons, uh, three persons, yet one God. Three persons of the Godhead working perfectly together and harmoniously together in eternity, in time, in creation, in salvation, working out that predetermined plan for mankind and all to the glory of God. The Father taking that leadership role in determining the way of salvation and sacrificing his one and only Son. The Son submitting to the Father's will and leaving that glory in heaven, living as the God-man and dying that substitutionary death for the elect of God. 
for those chosen to salvation by him from before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit enlightening men and women and indwelling them, um, indwelling all, indwelling them, indwelling all who know Christ. Look at the Trinity. There's no conflict. There's no pride. There's no one-upmanship. There's no self-seeking. There's no selfishness. There's no ambition other than the Trinity. Just perfect, seamless unity. So the real and present danger um, to unity in any church is an attack on its source. And that source should always be the Word of God. Spiritual apathy and general coldness and indifference to to biblical truth and to God's standard um, (coughs) of righteousness brings serious risks. And these things can disrupt, they can weaken and they can destroy a church. And, um, and, and, and it's really important for us to be looking at and dealing with disunity, disharmony, conflict and division. When the Bible is not central um, in the individual church and in the, sorry, in the individual's life and in the church, um, we are guided by secondary rules. We are guided by something or someone else. Or worse still, we're guided by emotions that can have a tendency to change with the wind and, and with circumstance. The world feels many things. The world feels that there's nothing wrong with abortion. That while Christians should have an abhorrence for it. The world feels that divorce is okay. You know, that that's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. But, you know, God says he hates divorce. Men and women say that, you know, it's okay to love anybody and it doesn't matter about gender, it doesn't matter about circumstance, it doesn't matter about, you know, life and, and relationship. But God has very clear rules in the Word of God about that and about what is right and what is wrong. In true, Christ, uh, in true love, one for another. The world feels the wrong way about many things. And if you follow God's word, we, you know, we, we're often placed in the, the numerical minority. But encouragingly, we're, if we're following God's word faithfully, we're in the spiritual majority. Because one plus God is always a majority. Another threat to true unity is the elevation of things of and issues of Christian liberty and seeking to in, enforce such liberties as though they were God's commands. And this can bring a unity disconnect. And, and if it's not dealt with well... And, and quickly and properly, it can be the source of much conflict and unrest in a church um, and when it's not handled um, biblically. Disunity is a potential danger for every church, no matter what its size. A danger which Paul seeks to address to some extent in every one 
of his letters to the churches. And we'll read a, a couple of examples this morning. We could turn to Romans. Paul says to the, to the church at Rome, Now, may God, who gives perseverance, encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Could turn to Ephesians 1, 1 to 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. While sound doctrine and moral purity and passionate commitment to the Lord and his work are essential to Christian work and to the church's effective ministry, these things alone can't protect from discord and, and disunity. A commentator I read on this passage made the following observation. The one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which there is a danger in every healthy... that this is a danger in every healthy church. It is when people um, are, are really in earnest, when, their disbelief, when their beliefs really matter, that they get up against each other. If things aren't important to you, do you make a stand against them? Not necessarily. But when something really matters to you, that's when it, that's when it grates you, right? The greater the enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. And it's against this danger that Paul wishes to safeguard his friends in the churches that he's planted. From Philippians 2, verse 4, we see that the Philippian church faced many dangers and, and there was a real danger of dis discord and disunity. Because it, it, and, it say, and it specifically says, I am, and it uses names, I implore Eudia and Syntyche um, to be of the same mind in the Lord. So Paul's concerns for the church here don't seem to be about doctrine or ideas or practices that are clearly unbiblical. Because if this was the case, he would have dealt with them as he does in other books. You know, think about Galatians 1, you know, if, if I or an angel from heaven come to you preaching anything else but what I've preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. You know, he, he jumped on that really quickly. It was a, it was a, it was a biblical issue and, and he, he dealt with it, you know, strongly and quickly. Uh, we could look at 1, 1 Corinthians and the, the man living in sin, in sexual sin, um, you know, he, he goes straight to that and he... He, go, he deals with the man, he deals with the church for not dealing with it, and then, then he moves on to other things. So this issue with Eudia and Syntyche isn't, doesn't seem to be 
a, a, a theological issue or, or something that, it, you know, went to doctrine. It, was, it seemed to be something more of um, circumstance or personality, preference, um, standards and interests uh, that were not primary issues but were issues of personal choice or, or relationship between them. But, the, but these issues and such issues as these should never be allowed to blow up into a major controversy in the church. To insist on one person's way above another or one's person's views or styles uh, or agenda above another um, is nothing but, at heart, pride. Believers must never, and I, I say this, must never compromise doctrines or principles that are clearly biblical. However, to humbly defer or agree to disagree um, with one another on a secondary issue or on an issue of Christian liberty is something that is a mark of spiritual strength, not weakness. It's a mark of maturity and love that God honours because it promotes and preserves harmony in his church. The unity that the, the Bible exalts is inward, not outward. Um, it's internally desired, not externally compelled and, uh, or enforced. History has shown us again and again that forced or enforced unity um, eventually crumbles and falls because it, it isn't love that holds it together, it's fear. Real unity is careful, it's thoughtful, it's determined obedience to God's will. It is Holy Spirit motivated and empowered and it's bonding hearts and minds and souls of God's people together to each other. Preserving real unity in, in the church then is not an option, it's a necessity. Okay? So I trust that that's sort of established that unity is essential um, in the life of a believer and in the life of the church. So let's look briefly at some motives for spiritual unity from, um, from the passage that we've read this morning and from uh, verse 2 of uh, Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation, and another word for that, encouragement, in Christ, if any conflict or love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfil my joy by being like-minded. So we've got a series of things here that we'll, we'll look at um, one by one. So the first, the first reality that motivates unity is consolation or encouragement in Christ. It means to come alongside someone to give assistance by offering comfort or counsel or exhortation. And a great example of this kind of encouragement would be the action of the Good Samaritan um, who did everything he could for the, that beaten stranger uh, by the road. The most important and powerful encouragement in Christ comes directly <coughs> sorry um, comes, yeah, comes, comes directly from the indwelling of the spirit in a believer's life. Paul's admonition here is that the light and encouragement of being in Christ uh, that the Philippians should conduct themselves 
in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Paul is really suggesting to the Philippians and all of us that the effect of the Spirit working in our lives should compel us to preserve the unity that is so precious and important to our God and and Saviour. Consolation of love, point two. This action has the meaning of speaking closely, uh, meaning of speaking closely with someone with the added idea of giving comfort. Consolation is marked by genuine concern, with helpfulness, with love. Think of the consoling love that Christ showed unworthy sinners like us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we in turn should show love for our fellow believers because this demonstrates the love that God has displayed to each of us. Do we come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ with consoling love when we know they need it? Or do we just clinically observe from a distance? Third point this morning the third reality that motivates unity in the fellowship of the spirit it is the fellowship of the spirit sorry um they did this describes a partnership and a mutual sharing this fellowship is with the spirit is an intimate thing because every believer is a temple of the holy spirit He is the seal and the guarantor of the believer's eternal inheritance, the source of spiritual power, the giver of spiritual gifts. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and even when we don't know how to pray, He is there interceding for us with groanings and words that cannot be expressed. By this one Spirit, we are brought to salvation. By this one spirit, we are brought into fellowship with God. Or to use Toza's illustration, we are brought in tune with the master, tuner. The fourth point this morning, the fourth reality that motivates unity is affection and mercy, or another word, compassion. These qualities characterise Christ, who tenderly, comforts the weak and and oppressed and these graces are also blessings of the spirit of Christ. Affection speaks of deep personal longing, especially for those who are dearly loved. An example of this type of affection to the Philippians is given by Paul in Philippians 1 verse 8 where he says, For God is my witness... How greatly I long for you, all with the affection of Christ. He seeks to model Christ's love and use that as an example because it's far greater than anything that he could generate from within within himself. Paul uses the mercy and compassion of Christ as an example to, to Christians in many of his letters. 
Again, let's look at another passage this morning. Colossians 3 verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. So some, some marks of spiritual unity this morning. Let's, let's continue with the second part of the, the verse in Philippians 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and being of one mind. This phrase, the, the, the phrase being like-minded, this phrase speaks of thinking the same thing. This isn't just speaking an outward mental agreement, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with him. But it, it's, it's more than that. It's, it, it's actively striving and having a heartfelt and inward common understanding and genuine agreement. Paul gives some really practical advice of how best to be of the same mind in Philippians 4 verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What do we let our minds dwell on? And where do we let our minds wander? Living as Paul describes here, brings the true, uh, true same-mindedness that is not based on circumstances or emotions, but on Christ and a desire to love and to serve him. So the second mark of spiritual unity this morning, having the same love. This is closely linked with being like-minded. Um, to have the same love is to love others equally. Now, on an emotional level, this is impossible because not everyone is equally attractive to us. That's just practically, you know, that's just common sense. Um, but to have the same love is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honour and includes a desire to serve um, others in things like contributing to, to needs, you know, practically, sometimes financially, practicing hospitality. This is only possible when this love is based on the same desire um, and will be like-minded. So in, in practice, it is Christians having the same love and like-mindedness for this one saviour that brings true spiritual like-mindedness. He is the primary object and he's the primary object of love rather than another person. Our love to God is go it should be and, and must be governed by selfless humility. It must be producing lo lives that overflow with genuine and practical love for our fellow brothers and sisters. A third mark of spiritual unity this morning. Um, being in accord 
and, and, that's being, and that's closely linked, again, with like-mindedness and having the same love. I read that this word in the Greek literally means to be one-souled. And you think about the relationship between our body and soul. That's, you know, that, there's nothing closer other than our love for God. Um, you know, if, um, our, our soul is our very essence. Our soul is what will continue on when we pass from this life. Our, our, you know, our soul is the thing that will eternally live in either heaven or hell. So being one-souled with someone is a closer relationship than we can ever imagine. And, and this, uh, this word, being one-souled, is this is the only time it's used in the whole of the New Testament. So it's to live a self, in selfless harmony with fellow believers. It excludes personal ambition, it, it excludes hatred, envy, jealousy and countless other evils that are the fruit of self-love. Being of one accord, again, must be grounded in the truth of God's word. But it also involves a deep and passionate concern for God himself, his word, his work, his gospel and his people. No two Christians, no matter you know, how uh, close they are or what level of uh, spiritual maturity they have, um, will understand everything exactly alike. I have a very close friend um, who is a Presbyterian and we, we, we have much in common, but there are some things that we don't. And, but, but we can put those more um, inconsequential things aside and deal with the truths of the gospel and rejoice and serve the same Saviour and same Lord in them. And, and you know, that's, that's what I'm talking about here. We can be of one accord, but we're not absolutely agreeing on everything because, you know, we're all different and, and we'll sometimes see things slightly differently. But when we're controlled by humility and love and we are genuinely in one accord, when we're, when we're controlled and... Um, and moved by the word of God, that is what drives us and that is what gives us our centre and, and gives us what is important. So we mustn't allow inconsequential differences to divide and get in the way of our service for Christ. Fourth mark of spiritual unity, um, being of one mind. This word in the Greek means thinking one thing. Paul, in this verse, has shown us a full circle of unity, from being like-minded, to having the same love, to being of one accord, and then back to being like-minded once again. These things are all inseparable, but show different aspects of uh, true unity and what it's all about. In Colossians 3... 12 to 16, Paul beautifully summarises the marks of spiritual unity that we've been looking at this morning. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, 
Even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. But in all things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with, the gra- uh, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. What a great summary that that is. So just some closing brief applications. I know through the relationships that we've built up with your, um, some of your elders over, over years between our churches, um, that you as a church have gone through a period of change in the last few years. Um, you've transitioned as a church and, um, from, um, and now have formal church membership. You have eldership. You have plurality of eldership. You've had Pastor Rob Jenner move back to the US. You've had Pastor Dan step in in the full-time role as pastor. And that's just to name a few things that I know about and there's probably a lot more. Um, I'm sure that you and your elders here um, as a church desire and want and strive for the spiritual unity that I've been speaking of this morning. And this is a good thing. And my purpose in bringing this message to you this morning is to encourage you in this good work and to continue in it. As a visiting preacher, I don't know the circumstances of your your individual spiritual unity or your um, relationships one with another. So I can speak with an uh, unknowing, open mind. Um, I can look at you and exhort you all to this good work. I want to encourage you to guard the spiritual unity you have and to exhort and excel in this great work. I want to encourage you to build on it and I want to encourage you to not let attitudes, misunderstandings come between you. Don't let Satan get a foothold. and bring and sow disunity amongst you as a, as a congregation and as a church. Keep short accounts with one another. Sort out disagreements and conflicts quickly. Each looking primarily to be brought into tune with Christ, the master tuner, and his word, and nothing else. So after looking at the principles of encouragement, count, uh, consoling love, the fellowship of the spirit we enjoy and the affection and mercy and compassion that Christ shows us are our relationships, are our responses, first and foremost to Christ and then to each other, all they should be. What changes do you need to make this morning to be more in tune and unified with Christ and with each other this morning? What priorities does the word of God and prayer have in your daily schedules? Is the unity you have in gathering as a, as a church here something more social or a, an emotional connection or something of personal traits and simi- similarities and personal traits? Or do you have a like-mindedness grounded in love and desire to serve Christ our our Lord? Are you striving to be like-minded and have a real and genuine understanding 
and agreement in the things of God? Are you showing real and genuine brotherly and sisterly love one for another? Are you showing selfless humility? Are you passing over inconsequential differences to ensure that the work of God is not hindered and relationships are not affected? Are you living one-souled lives in one accord with Christ your Saviour and with others? If we honestly look at these things this morning, each of us in our lives and in our hearts have much to think about and, and much to improve on. And I can't finish without saying that I'm really encouraged this morning in the relationships that have developed between our two churches, between our, between our pastors. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and, in, and there is a good, and we see a good measure of unity and, 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 we, and we love that, we encourage that, and we, but we never want to take it for granted because Satan is constantly trying to divide and conquer God's people. He is a master at it. And we so, and we often, and so often make it so easy for him by our sin, our selfishness, and our pride. So let's close this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for the, the wisdom of the Apostle Paul and, and Lord, his desire to see churches functioning and working well together, Lord, for the, for the glory of God and for the extension um, of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that as we've looked at these principles this morning, that, Lord, you would touch our hearts and, and Lord, that you would um, put your finger on things that, Lord, we, we can improve on. Lord, that we're areas of our lives where our unity isn't as good as it should be with, with you as our, as our Lord and Saviour and, Lord, even between um, our interrelationships with one another. Lord, we pray that you, we would, Lord, guard our, the, the unity in our churches and, and see it as, uh, as a priority, as something of great importance. And Lord, uh, where, for when a church is in unity, Lord, it is, it is a formidable foe uh, against Satan. And Lord, when, uh, when a church is in disunity, um, it, it is a train wreck. And Lord, we just pray this morning that you would help us to be the men and women you want us to be. And Lord, lead us on. And Lord, in our churches, may we continue to present the gospel. And, and Lord, be the lights and salt that you call us to be in this world. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.